you can feel it all around. The pandemic is changing all around us. And if that's not how it feels to you, well, then you just haven't been paying attention. We have at Three Better Rule. David Eichenthal, Tom Griscom, all of us, we, we, can, we can sense it. We can feel it. You can see it in the bustling crowds at restaurants, in the lines at shopping malls and stores. It's everywhere. Pandemic lifting fever, gentlemen. Uh, but, but we have spent a lot of time uh, on this show, and we will spend some time on this show talking about the pandemic. I know, because it is hard not to. But I say this as somebody who spent three years of my undergraduate collegiate life in the great state of Georgia, who still cheers for the Georgia Bulldogs when it is football season. And I just don't know any other way to describe the last couple of weeks than to say my heart has been broken by the remarkable revelations involving the murder of Mr. Ahmad Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia. It's not that Southeast Georgia is a particularly remarkable place known for its uh, racial uh, accommodation over the years. And it's not that any of us are mistaken or I think under misapprehension about the extent to which there is still racial conflict and mistrust and misunderstanding in our culture. Indeed, if you want to go way back, I would argue the United States of America is built on it and has nurtured it carefully and closely over the years. Our policies for centuries have been based upon it. Our great national debates, our great national conflict built on it. But there is something about seeing a man out for a jog shot down in cold blood by civilians or people acting in a civilian capacity that is still shocking and disgusting and amazing. Tom Griscom, I, I don't have the words to describe it, except I think the response has been somehow worse. Is that too much? No, it's not, Tom. I tell you, when when that story came out, and I, I mean, for whatever reason, for the video finally to get out, you know, I'm thankful for that happening. But it it is it's been really hard to figure out where you've got prosecutors and others involved in 2020 who can just sort of look the other way and 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 just ignore this i mean it, it it's it's still hard for me to figure out how to explain the fact that a couple months ago this happened and it just went nowhere and you know if that video had not come out and i read how it got out we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would still be nowhere. That's correct. We would have we would have had a young man out jogging, lost his life, and nobody would have known, and 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 it would have been just sort of 
I hate, I hate to say it, but I think it's the right way to say it, just sort of swept under the rug. And we're talking about we're talking about a life here. I mean, that's that's what really got me when I read this story and looked at it and said, what's this all about? And why did it take us this long to get here? Mm-hmm. We can't have this conversation without acknowledging that we're only eight years since the murder of Trayvon Martin, a young man who also was stalked and killed because he'd gone to the grocery store to buy Skittles. And he he had the, I guess he committed the crime of, of, of wearing a black hooded sweatshirt. And that seemed to trigger Mr. George Zimmerman. And, and I think it makes me, it makes me pause about the justice that is likely to come in this case. And for those of us who are tempted and all of us are at some level, we want to be tempted to say, well, we're a colorblind society. I don't see color. Well, we're past that. You're talking about the Civil War or the Civil Rights Days or something else. And we're not. We are not. I, uh, when I was a reporter, I had occasion to do a series of stories on how one becomes a sheriff in Tennessee. And in those days, about 30 years ago, the only thing you had to do to become a sheriff in the state of Tennessee was to get your name on a ballot and get the most votes. That was it. One of the good things that happened after that series was the state of Tennessee put some additional requirements on how one becomes a sheriff. You now have to be a certified officer, post-certified. All of those things are good and important. But What I have to tell you about that series is the place we went to talk about progressive, qualified, credentialed law enforcement was Georgia. Because Georgia had, 30 years ago, put statutes and laws in place to make sure that law enforcement personnel didn't just win a popularity contest. They had some qualifications. And here we are. Law enforcement, prosecutors, the whole justice system absent. David, I know you've been thinking about this, and I really want to talk about baseball soon. But I I think we've got to come to terms with this and try to explain it, even in this moment, maybe especially in this moment, where even something is seemingly nonpartisan and benign as a virus suddenly becomes a matter of partisanship before we lock down in our respective camps on how we see this, how, how ought we see this moment and make some sense of it? I worry that as a nation, we've gotten to a point where we have too high of a tolerance for activities that cause the loss of human life. I, I worry that we have somehow lost our ability to be outraged 
I'm outraged about what happened in this case. I'm outraged at the killing. I'm outraged at the conduct of law enforcement. I'm outraged at the conduct that the National District Attorneys Association has denounced of one of the prosecutors who said, oh, I have to recuse myself from the case. But before I do so, let me tell you why I don't think there's a case. But I'm also outraged by the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on communities of color. I'm outraged at the everyday violence that occurs disproportionately impacting those same communities. I'm outraged at all, all of the factors that, uh, that lead to high risk in the middle of this pandemic. We know that disproportionately African-Americans and Latinos are, are much more at risk, disproportionately at risk when it comes to things like obesity and diabetes. And, and I, I just fear, I fear for the nation in the context of, the, of this specific case, but I fear for the nation also in the context of how we're responding to this pandemic and responding to gun violence and responding to so many other issues that we've lost the necessary amount of outrage when we see these things happen that aren't just unjust and unfair, but they're, they're murderous and deadly. I mean, this was a modern day lynching in the streets of Georgia that took place. And, and there's no other way to, there's no other way to put it. And the fact that it took as long as it did for it to come out as you, you've both noted the fact that nothing would be happening, uh, but for the fact that this video came, came out, um, it's extraordinary. And it's a reflection. It is a reflection of a larger division that, that exists in the country. I mean, no. the one thing I'll, the one, the one last thing I'll say, Tom, is, mm -hmm. you know, I felt this way a little bit during the, the riots in Baltimore, actually, during, during the Freddie Gray case. And I went back mm -hmm. and I reread parts of the Kerner Commission report. Uh, and it's, it, the, 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 the Kerner Commission, change. the Kerner Commission, which by the way, came, how many years before the Baltimore riots? Oh, the Kerner Commission of 1967-1968. Right. Right. You could read the same. You, If you were to reprint the Kerner Commission report, changing some words, but only making minor changes, it would be equally applicable today uh, as it was, you know, more than 50 years ago. Um, have we made progress in the country around race? Of course we have. Have we made enough progress? Of course we haven't. I, I think that there is going to be some justice. I hope there is going to be some justice in this specific case in terms of holding the people who committed the crime accountable. I think that, you know, the Georgia Attorney General I think he's done the right thing by asking the Justice Department in to look at this as a hate crimes uh, prosecution, by the way, in part because Georgia is one of the few states that doesn't have its own hate crime statute. That's right. Uh, uh, but uh, but is that really justice? I mean, I don't know what you do with the, the law enforcement and the prosecutorial officials here, uh, but it's it's extraordinary. You know, I. I know that we use the word, and I think properly so, to the word justice. 
to apply to a particular case? Was justice done in that case? But I think I can speak for what I know of the faith understandings and traditions, at least of this threesome, that justice has a broader meaning. And I, I often think of it in contrast to compassion. And in this way, that showing compassion to somebody, and this, is, this was the great uh, Martin Luther King formulation, King says, compassion is, is when we help the guy out of the ditch. Justice is when we make sure that people don't have to travel a dangerous road where they get robbed every time they go down the path. It's at scale. Justice is, if you'll permit, love at scale. And, and justice in this case, as we think of the criminal justice system, is certainly something to aspire to and something that people should expect and demand, march for, activate for. But the broader issue that you're talking about, David, is, is justice at scale. And that's the work, it seems to me. For those of us who do not live in uh, Brunswick, Georgia, who are not politically uh, tied or we don't we don't elect the DA or the sheriff or the police uh, uh, the folks that the police chief answer to so we do have a part in this at the risk of I don't know preaching on it a little bit I, I think that's 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 got to be our calling the Baltimore riots were the last time a major league baseball game was played without a crowd and the Orioles had, I think it was the White Sox, game scheduled against the White Sox. And the, the Orioles and the mayor of the city agreed, because of the press of the season and the lateness of the year, that while the city was rioting, the Orioles would play baseball. And they did in an empty Camden Yards to no music, no public address announcers, just the sounds of balls hitting bats and gloves. And the announcers, frankly, made fun of it, which was a little sickening because they were inside the ballpark thinking about the circumstances of the ballpark. I'll flash to another example that ties this together for us in our themes here on this show. In 1967, when riots broke out in Detroit, leading in part to the Kerner Commission report you've described, in uh, July of 1967, the Yankees were playing the Tigers in a doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. And Ernie Harwell, the great voice of the Detroit Tigers, was doing the game for WJR Radio and the Tiger Network. And Harwell, from his press box seat, could see the smoke rising up from the beginnings of the riots just a couple of blocks away from the corner where Tiger Stadium sat. And he tells the story that his bosses at the radio station said, you are not allowed to talk about that. Keep your focus on the ball game. So this week we found out that the Major League Baseball owners approved a plan by which baseball would resume 
sometime in early July and play an 82-game schedule, some things still to be worked out regarding that schedule itself. Of course, the players didn't uh, aren't uh, happy with the idea because it is going to have a significant effect on many of their uh, salaries. So we don't have baseball yet. But if we have baseball, we will have it again in an empty ballpark. It will be played in a context that, not caused by riots, not caused by violence, but my question for you gentlemen is, when baseball is played in an empty ballpark, will the announcers talk about why the ballpark is empty? When the ballpark is empty in Atlanta, Tom Griscom, Atlanta Braves fan, will will the Braves announcers be allowed to comment on why this park is empty and how it got this way? Or does it just become part of the patter, just a kind of a humorous, quirky thing that gets tossed around? My question is, does baseball get woke by having a significant number of African-American players playing a significant number of games in the southern United States, including the great state of Georgia, in this moment? Is this baseball's opportunity, and will it seize it? Well, a different question I'll come back to, but if anybody is watching Korean baseball, and I am, You've got announcers sitting in the United States rebroadcasting games being played in Korea, and they show the, the stands, and they show the cheerleaders, and they show the empty stands, mm-hmm. and they talk about it. Mm. But they talk about it in the context of what baseball is really all about. But no, they don't lose the sight of why we're playing this, these games in Korea, why they're important, and why there's nobody there. What I hope is that the owners and the players who are sitting here dilly-dallying back and forth allow each other and allow announcers to actually talk about what's going on. I mean, I am so tired of, you know, well, we need this because we're losing this much revenue, and, you know, we've got to have this salary because this or that. That Okay, I get all that. That's the business side of it. But what I have yet to hear, and I've been reading this for days, Mm -hmm. let's talk about why it's important. What's it all about? Mm -hmm. How is it a fabric of this country and what people care about? And that they're looking for something to grab hold of. And baseball, for me, and I think for you all, has always served that role. It does for many people. But we spend more time saying, well, we're going to have designated re- hitter in both leagues. Sorry, you don't get to vote on it. Ha, ha, ha. And for those of you who are purists, too bad. Rather than, Tom, to your question, why do we care? What does baseball represent? What is the history of baseball? And, and if we've talked about this before. Some of the teams that, and some of the players that never got to play in Major League Baseball were African-American. And in the latter years, the Satchel Page people like this, who did pitch for the Atlanta Braves, were given that opportunity. But it, I mean, I am so tired of reading about, I mean, I would like to somebody say at some point this year, we're going to get fans back in the stands. 
because we know that's going to happen, I think, if it if it occurs. But we are spending so much time on, you know, whether the owners get this or that, or am I going to get all my salary or not, rather than why do people care? There's a great story I read today saying this may be one of the most defining moments for baseball if they don't understand why it's important to a certain segment of this country. And if they don't touch that and they don't recognize that's why people are longing for baseball. It isn't about whether I play in, you know, in this stadium or that stadium or the number of games or whether there's cost sharing and all this other stuff that has gone on forever. It's about a connection back to something that people care about. You know, I've been spending some of my non-baseball time going back to my way back childhood. And I've been playing an old baseball game called APBA Baseball. And yep. it's it simulates. Do it too. Yes. Yeah, there you yeah. go. So it's got dice and cards and charts right. and the players perform statistically as they would in real life. And it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a, a game and a practice gone the way of board games. And my father's hobby, which is building model railroads. We're a lost family, but I've been playing the 1966 season and I just want to, for a moment, talk about the players that made the 1966 season and that era so exciting. Frank Robinson, Paul Blair, Tommy Agee, David Eichenthal in his rookie season when he was voted rookie of the year. We can think of these guys and we should. Willie Horton of the Tigers. Baseball always has been and is still today the, the prism through which you can tell which new American immigrant ethnic group is moving forward. Because baseball has always brought those persons forward before the rest of society was ready. You can go back to the 1880s and 90s when professional baseball teams were full of immigrants from Germany and Ireland. You can move to the 1920s when Central European immigrants were coming to the United States in great numbers and beginning to find their way onto Major League Baseball rosters, move to Jackie Robinson. And then finally, to the current day, the African-American population on Major League Baseball teams is lower than at any time since before Jackie or immediately after Jackie. But what has happened instead is baseball has become the route of opportunity for the surging Latino population in the United States. It mirrors, it mirrors, and I would argue leads in opening opportunity and demonstrating opportunity for, for the, the, the classes that are excluded, the persons that are excluded from our country. If there's any reason to love baseball, it is that. 
Frank Robinson won the Triple Crown in 1966. He'd just been traded from the Cincinnati Reds. One of the worst deals ever of all time. For the Reds, that is. It made the Orioles dynasty of the 60s and 70s. And when Robinson went to Baltimore, the home of Freddie Gray, Frank Robinson could not buy a house in the neighborhood he wanted because of restrictive racial covenants in the, in the neighborhood. He, time and again, was sent to the black neighborhood. That's where you live, Frank Robinson, as you are winning the Triple Crown in Major League Baseball. There's a great book about this, by the way, called Black and Blue. And it is about the 1966 World Series between the Orioles and the Dodgers. And black and orange are the colors of the Dodgers, of course, or the Orioles, of course, Dodger blue. But, but the black is specifically about Robinson's experience coming to a city that would cheer for him in between the foul lines, but wouldn't let him be their neighbor. And that, I think, is what baseball has to really, really confront. It is awesome to celebrate Jackie Robinson Day. We missed it this year. I hope we do it again. But baseball has got an obligation. If baseball is going to be on the pedestal on which we have placed it, gentlemen, baseball has an obligation now to do more than just show up and hit home runs. I think baseball has an obligation to, frankly, earn our love and to demonstrate that it is self-aware. Now's the time. And, and Tom, uh, that's what I'm so worried about with the plan that Major League Baseball has put out this week. I don't see any self-awareness in it. And I, 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 uh, I know that there are folks on both the management side and on the player side that are very, very worried about what this season could mean if there is no baseball this season, what it could mean to the future of baseball. I will tell you, I am even more worried about what would happen if the major leagues attempt to go through with the plan that they've articulated. Uh, Because I don't know that it is baseball. I don't know that it gets to sort of the special meaning that you're talking about. You know, uh, I'm glad you're replaying the the 1966 season. I know you'll be happy to hear that I watched Game 5 of the 1969 World Series the other day. Just a wonderful experience. I'm so happy to hear that. but, but, But the thing that I've enjoyed most that's baseball related in the last week or so is I discovered, I assume it's been out there for a while, that there are all of these great recordings of classic baseball games, so the radio recordings of those games. So I listened to the final game of the 1955 World Series the other day. Uh, Speaking about Jackie Robinson, speaking about the Brooklyn Dodgers, though, who knew Jackie Robinson didn't play in Game 7 because he was injured? Um, uh, so the one time the Brooklyn Dodgers won the series, it wasn't with Jackie Robinson in the lineup that day, but, but that was the series though. Isn't that the same series where he steals home against Barra and the Yankees? Yeah. Earlier in the series. But he wasn't in game seven though, though you do hear about Don Newcomb warming up in the, in the bullpen. It was just extraordinary listening to this, but, but I think that's the point. I think the three of us and so many other people, and I can't imagine 
that it doesn't include everyone who's taking the time to listen to this podcast have put so much faith in sort of the restorative and uniting value of baseball that if it if it uh, pardon the pardon the pun if it steps up to the plate and swings and misses on how it handles this current crisis it's a devastating blow and and i think for all of the issues that tom talks about and how it's all about money we've talked repeatedly on this podcast about how no one is bothering to actually ask fans i was going online today and i was trying to find a single poll that talks that talks about what fans want in terms of baseball and i just couldn't find one I am really worried that the current day owners and leadership of Major League Baseball, you know, the same people who've been bringing to you the uh, reduction of minor league baseball are are just going to miss on this and it could have a devastating impact on the game. I mean, I mean, the 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 current plan where we're going to organize by time zones and we're going to go into different stadiums. Uh, I'm wondering if anyone's briefed Andrew Cuomo about the Mets and Yankees playing in New York after after all that the city and the state has been through. I mean, the tone deafness of this is just extraordinary. David, you hit a key, and we have talked about it. I'm glad all these smart people who have deep pockets have figured out we need to somehow get this going so we can get our TV revenue. But did they ever talk to the three of us and to those who we know listen to us and those who are outside here? The answer, you're right, is no. Right. So, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've shared with you with you all for two weeks now watching Korean baseball because I miss it, but it's very different than what we're talking about here. This is about money. I'm sorry. It isn't about the national pastime, why it's important, why it is a heart and soul of what America is all about. It's about money. And at some point, I mean, I don't want baseball ever to go away, but I really want somebody to shake them, all of them, and say, what happens if you go forward and in doing so, you lose your fan base? I think the thing that, that comes to me in in this moment, Tom, is is we can all point to times in history where somebody said, "Oh, baseball's in trouble. There's a strike, or there's a lockout, or somebody's making too much money, or the Yankees are always winning." You can imagine whatever crisis of the moment, and eventually other things happen. Eventually the country turns to something else and then baseball kind of slips back into our consciousness. I think the difference this time and right now in this moment, and the reason why at the risk of self-promotion, this podcast is so timely is that I do not know of a way right now where anybody can avoid the politics of their actions. And that's not to say that everything we do must be red or blue or understood along a partisan continuum. It is to say 
that the United States of America is right now seized of two national traumas. And I would argue the Arbery killing is one of them. And the other is the coronavirus. We are seized of two national traumas. And it is impossible, I would say, to think about anything more complicated than going to the grocery store without putting it in that context. And that's where baseball is, too. I think it has to be. I don't think it's a political context or a red or blue context, though, Tom. I think it's a, it's a context about, for lack of a better word, maybe humanity. It turns out that Branch Rickey was right from a business perspective, but he was also morally right. And he was ultimately politically right. And that's really the challenge for baseball here. I have heard nothing in any of these discussions <laughs> about how they're going to take precautions in terms of health and safety for the communities in which they're playing. I have heard nothing in all of these discussions about what percentage of the take is going to healthcare workers or people who've been on the front lines dealing with this crisis. The, the, again, the complete tone deafness about the way that Major League Baseball has approached this is extraordinary. And the reality is they are not going to get away with it. Because we, we, I shared this with you guys. It, you know, uh, it's interesting that the owners may think that the union is the greatest stumbling block to how they proceed with these plans. The reality is that the greatest stumbling blocks to their pursuing this path are the governors of the states where they want to go play baseball. Now, it was one thing when we were talking about the Citrus League and the Cactus League in Arizona and Florida. Those governors seem to be ready to do just about anything. Come on but, down. Uh, but, you know, there, there's a, a little place called California where there are five major league baseball teams out of 30 teams. And there's some pretty good teams, including the, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And uh, it doesn't seem to me like anyone bothered to talk to Gavin Newsom about whether this was such a good idea. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that anyone has talked to, to Andrew Cuomo about whether it's a good idea or even Larry Hogan or Charlie Baker, the Republican governors that have really cared about and put public health really at the center of their response to this crisis. Mike and DeWine. Again, it's Mike DeWine. It's just an extraordinary level of tone deafness. I mean, really, did, you know, the president has found out what happens when you get into it with Gretchen Whitmer. I don't think the Detroit Tigers want to go that direction. There is one thing in my mind and I think this is what's going on right now in the discussion about trying to reopen college campuses. We've had this week the California state system saying with 550,000 students, we're not going to open. We've had others. And what I'm missing in here is I love baseball. We all do. But I have not heard at one point saying, we're going to do the things, work with this. We're going to look at all the health issues. We'll talk to the governors that you talk about, and our health, our health experts. And maybe at some point, even with social distancing, 
we'll have some fans back in the stands. Not everybody wants to sit here and say, oh my gosh, I can't wait to turn on the TV and watch this. There's something about being there. It's the experience Mm -hmm. of being in a baseball game and watching what goes on. But I have yet to see anything that says, we're opening up, no fans. Well, thank you very much. But is anybody thinking at some point, if we do things smartly, if we work with the people you talked about, we ought to have hopefully some fans back in the stand. That's hope. It's not money. It's hope. And I think the real baseball fan wants to be there and experience the game as it's being played. The great James Earl Jones speech, which I think I stole a few episodes back. I won't steal twice. In Field of Dreams, everybody knows or likes the end of it. But at the beginning of it, he's talking about why people will come to Iowa. And it isn't if you build it, they will come. He, he explains why they will come to Iowa. And he says they will hand over $20 bills just to have a look around. And he says, for it's money they have, it's peace they lack. Right. And that's what we're talking about. It's money all these systems have. And frankly, for those of us who want to see a Major League Baseball game and will pay the ticket price. But I don't know of a time when it's ever been clearer that it is peace we lack. And that is trying to find what is, I'm calling it the next normal, not the new normal, the next normal. And they could be part of it if they want to think about it. David, I'm going to let you have the last word because our time to close is rapidly upon us. Well, I mean, I think uh, I, I think we go back to the same place, right? It's it's about how we begin to think about things in this country that could actually unite us, how we're honest enough about our differences and work to resolve them, how we somehow create a table, whether it's about figuring out the future of baseball or figuring out how we continue what seems to be the never ending cause of trying to deal with racial injustice in our country, how we create a table where everyone's point of view is respected and heard, but we make real progress. I think the the thing that disappoints all of us so much about what happened in Georgia is not just the tragedy of the acts that were committed, but the response of the institutions charged with, with addressing the issue of justice. And I think what troubles us so much about where it seems that Major League Baseball is going is is not just the tragedy of the economic and the public health crisis that we front that we confront, but the seeming inability of the leadership of a game that we care a lot about to step up in a meaningful way to address it. Forty-six years ago this year, in the great state of Georgia, an African American batter hit a pitch from an African-American pitcher over the left field stands into the bullpen at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium built in the midst of an African-American neighborhood. And despite years of death threats 
and shunning and discrimination and hatred and bigotry. Hank Aaron rounded those bases. And in a somewhat different time with respect to ballpark security, there were two young men who jumped out of the stands and clapped him on the back between second and third base. It wasn't exactly what Aaron wanted, (laughs) but they were two white guys and they greeted him in the midst of his moment. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're talking about because there is no one more woke in the history of baseball than Henry Louis Aaron. And I would submit he is the greatest testament to why baseball is what we care about and what it can be, and that the state of Georgia can, in fact, get this right yet. And we'll find out soon enough if they will. Tom Griscom, David Eichenthal. I'm Tom Lee, producer Kerry Hayes. Thanks for listening. See you next time.